Trinity Dallas. We pray that this message will be a source of encouragement and hope in your life today. Enjoy today's message. High five your neighbors. Say, I'm so glad I'm sitting next to you. All right. You know, what was so crazy is right after you guys finished the second song, I really felt like we were supposed to sing the third song, but I didn't know you were going into the third song, so I looked up the chords for the third song so that I could get up here and say, hey, let's sing this third song. And then right as I looked up the, the song, I was reading the lyrics, and you started singing them, so there was that. So we were on the same page. That's pretty cool. My flashlight's on. That's awkward. Jeez. <laughs> How are we? It's good to be back. This is my uh, third presence conference. So thank you so much for tolerating me enough to uh, welcome me back. Um, it really is a joy to be here. I love it and I look forward to it. Um, I, I'm at the point now where I just ask Pastor Joe if I can come. So I'm not so sure he invited me this year as much as I just told him I wanted to be here and he obliged. So. I love Pastor Joe and Pastor Nancy with my whole heart, and uh, my wife, who isn't here tonight, uh, but wishes she could be, feels exactly the same way. We absolutely adore the two of you, and uh, we're so inspired by you. I love your church. I love what, I just love how much faith and vision you have, and uh, you're just, you're overflowing with, with dreams that come from the Lord, and it's a genuine privilege to be in this house, uh, underneath your covering, and uh, just in the, the atmosphere that you have stewarded for all of these years. And every single one of us are absolutely blessed because of it. Uh, I've only known you for a few short years, but they have been wonderful getting to know you guys. And uh, the first time I ever had a serious interaction with Nancy, she slipped a $100 bill into my pocket and told me to go take my wife on a date. So I was sold from day one, friends and family. Come on. Do you love Pastor Joe and Pastor Nancy? Aren't they awesome? We love you guys. We do. Well, I, uh, I'm going to be sharing tonight and tomorrow night, and uh, I felt like the Lord um, put it on my heart to share, I guess, kind of like one message in two parts uh, between tonight and, and tomorrow. So um, I'm hopeful that, that God will say something to you uh, through all of the air that I breathe over the next hour and a half, over the next couple of nights as I, as I preach these messages. Um, and so if you're a note taker in church, I invite you to Get out your phone or your, your notebook or something and maybe God will speak to you directly through something that I say or maybe just off the back of something that I mentioned. Maybe God has a word for you tonight or tomorrow. Um, I, I believe that you're, on, you're here on purpose. I really do. And so come with me to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. This is, uh, is Jesus' triumph triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem at uh, the start of his Passion Week. It says, after Jesus had said this, and this is in reference to a parable he had just shared about how the kingdom of God uh, was not going to come fully uh, in the immediate sense um, and that they were, we were to steward what it is that he leaves with us uh, in the meantime. That's the parable that he just shared. After he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say the Lord needs it. 
Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them as they were untying the colt. Its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks in the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they said. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, I want you to keep Jesus' emotion here in your mind as we read these words that he's about to say. He's weeping over the city of Jerusalem, and he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Jesus here is prophesying, I believe, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. A couple of months ago, I was sitting in a living room with, I don't know, about 20, 25 pastors or so from within uh, the C3 family of churches and the morning opened up with one of your own, Pastor Matthew, sharing a devotional on confronting fear. And over the course of that 15 or 20 minute devotional, you could feel the atmosphere in the room shift as every single heart of the pastors in, in that room opened up to what it was God was saying through him and was hungry for God to move in our midst in, in that area of fear, which is such a prominent area for a lot of people. And by the end of the devotional, it was very clear to everybody in the room that we were at a bit of a crossroads for the morning. We could either carry on with the agenda and do things as planned and talk about the stuff that we needed to talk about, or we could respond to the fact that the presence of Jesus was in the room and he was quite clearly ready to encounter us and bring us freedom in this area of fear. Thankfully, another one of your own, none other than Pastor Joe, was in the room and he had the wisdom and the boldness to seize the moment and make sure that we did not just glide past this manifestation of God's presence in the room to get on with the business, but rather took a moment to have prayer and have ministry so that we could encounter Jesus and experience freedom. And I can vouch for the power of that ministry. I was in the room and I have felt a difference in my own life in relation to fear since that day. I'm so glass, glad that that moment was not missed for the sake of a run sheet. Which really makes me wonder, how often do those moments go the other way? How often does Jesus turn up with a particular purpose and you and I, we miss it? I don't mean turning up just on Sunday at a church service or 
maybe in your small group. I mean also turning up in your daily life, maybe to empower you to minister to somebody at your job or maybe when you're just out on the town having a dinner date with your spouse. How often does Jesus turn up in moments with a particular purpose in his heart for us and yet we don't recognize it? Or we don't have the wisdom and the boldness to act upon it? Tonight, I very simply wanna talk to you about recognizing when the king comes close. By the time we get to Luke's account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem for Passion Week, Luke has been masterfully revealing all of the expectations for all of the different people and players in this setting. The first layer of expectation is the most important one, and that is the expectation of Jesus himself. Continually throughout Luke's gospel, he lets us know that Jesus has been heading in the direction of Jerusalem on purpose for a purpose. Luke says that Jesus had set his face like stone towards Jerusalem. He was immovable in his mission, which was to culminate in his death and burial and resurrection at the holy city of the Jewish people. That's what is on the mind of Jesus. The purpose for which he came into the world is the same purpose for which he is coming into the city of Jerusalem that day. And that's obviously the most important layer of expectation in this story, that of Jesus himself. Such a heavy expectation that Luke later tells us causes Jesus to sweat drops of blood on the night before his crucifixion. That mood obviously doesn't match the mood of another group of people who are present in this story. That group is uh, a group that Luke identifies as a crowd of disciples. And the term disciple is used loosely since some of them were true, but many of them were not. Indeed, many of them are in a, just a few days gonna be part of the group who are crying out for Jesus' crucifixion at the behest of the Pharisees, which is not surprising because earlier in Luke chapter 19, the same group of people are grumbling about the fact that Jesus went to go have lunch with a notorious sinner named Zacchaeus. So they're clearly a very fickle group of people in terms of how they feel about Jesus. They're not necessarily with him because they're devoted to Jesus. They are there, Luke says, because of the many miracles they had seen Jesus perform. And they're anticipating something very different to Jesus as they enter Jerusalem. They are anticipating Jesus to ride into the city, take control, become the king of the Jews, and fulfill their messianic hope. And Jesus is indeed their Messiah, just not in the way that they're anticipating. Their expectation is immediate and almost entirely material. And so it's with that immediate material expectation that they erupt into praise as Jesus makes his descent down into the city of Jerusalem. Some of them wave palm branches. Some of them lay their cloaks on the ground, both of which is just symbolic for the praise and the honor that they are pouring out upon Jesus as they anticipate his kingship. Their confession is correct. Their motivation and expectations are not. Even the disciples of Jesus who were meant to be true, those 12 who were closest to him were caught up with misguided motivations and expectations of their own. Just a couple of chapters later in the Last Supper, we're gonna find them arguing with one another, one another over who is the greatest in the kingdom and who, have, who would have the highest position in the kingdom. So that even on the night before Jesus' suffering and death, these guys still don't get it and their expectation is still amiss. There's one more layer of expectation that Luke 
weaves into this moment, and that is the expectation of the Pharisees. Their expectation is part political, it's part religious, and it's part practical, really. If Jesus goes on growing in popularity like he is and winning the favor of all the people so that they want to make him their king, that's going to earn the attention of Rome in a really bad way, and they're going to come and take away what pseudo-freedom they have, crush them, and kill many people in the process. And so they are desperate to avoid that fate. On top of that, they think that Jesus is a blasphemer of the worst order because he's claiming to be God. And so they are plotting and planning Jesus's death. So masterfully, Luke is revealing the competing expectations of all these different groups building up to this moment where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And by doing that, Luke is actually building the expectation of one more group. And that group is us, the readers. As we read Luke's gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry, now with the hindsight of his death and his resurrection, our own anticipation is lifted for a fresh glimpse into the wisdom of God who shocks the crowd's anticipation for a throne with a cross and the Pharisees' anticipation for a cross with a resurrection. We know that Jesus will go to the cross, yet not without resurrection. We know that he will be enthroned, yet not without his cross. And so when we read the story, our anticipation turns to awe as the hands of Jew and Gentile conspire together to destroy the Son of God, events that Satan himself is behind, but that we now know God was superintending from heaven to bring about the salvation of mankind. And that is where many people stop their reading of the text. Simply reflecting on what has happened as a result of Jesus' passion. But as awesome as it is to reflect upon what the scripture teaches about the passion of Jesus, if we were to stop there tonight, I think that we would be stopping short. A little bit like if we were just to stop at the devotional of Pastor Matthew without the accompanying ministry time that was so needed in that window, that moment where Jesus was clearly showing up. You see, I think that this inspired text that the Holy Spirit put in the scriptures about Jesus' arrival coming into the city of Jerusalem isn't just there for us to reminisce, it's there for us to respond. Because one of the things that this text shows us is that Jesus is the king who comes close to his people with particular purposes, and the question is whether or not we will recognize his coming and respond in the right way. It said in Luke 19, verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God. So you have one group who are praising, another group who are fuming, another group over here who are plotting their position and their prestige. But only Jesus knew the actual purpose and significance of his coming into Jerusalem that day. And every single group had missed it and would continue to miss it so badly that as Jesus makes his way in, he ends this segment of scripture with these words, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I love that. Jesus came near and they did not recognize the time of God's coming. I wonder how many times Jesus has come near to me and I miss the time of God's arrival. You see, here's what I want to say to you tonight, that just as sure as Jesus 
drew near to Jerusalem with a particular purpose, so also he draws near to us today with particular purposes. He draws near to the Jerusalem of our hearts amidst our own sacred plans and expectations. He comes as the king to disrupt our everyday moments and upend our agendas in hopes that we may respond with the kind of participation that invites his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And you and I ought not to be surprised that Jesus wants to show up in our lives in this way. He did teach us to expect his coming. And not just in the full and final sense with new creation, but in an ongoing sense, Jesus says, I will come to you. Did he not say during the Last Supper to the Twelve that anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them? This, of course, is in reference to the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus says continually proceeds from the Father, who comes from God to his people. Now, we know that the Spirit takes up permanent residence in the heart, of every single believer in Jesus, but we also know both by scripture and by experience that there are times when the manifestation of his presence and the whisper of his voice is unique and profound that we would be amiss if we do not recognize that his grace is available to us in those moments in a particular way. And those moments are the king coming close to his people with a particular purpose. This is one of the themes of the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Not just that Jesus has come or that Jesus will come, both of which are true, but also that Jesus comes to his church by his spirit throughout history. He manifests himself to us for purposes, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, 5, he says, consider how far you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. To the Laodiceans, he says in Revelation three twenty, here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So in these two examples, we see the dual purposes of Jesus coming to his church at times with judgment for those who refuse to repent for their compromise and complacency, but also with blessing for those who are ready to receive him. Jesus wants to come to his church and you and I, we confess that we want him to come to us, the church. I mean, think about how often we pray, come Lord Jesus or come Holy Spirit when we get together as God's people, but does our expectation match our confession and our prayer? In the times that we're living in, I find that Christians are increasingly obsessed with the second coming of Christ. My question is that when he comes on that day, will we be welcoming a king whom we've treated as a stranger all these years? Or will we welcome him as the friend whose company we've enjoyed all along? And he is a friend. And he wants to come as our friend. That's why he comes with gifts. Perhaps he comes to you this month with a gift of evangelism. Will you obey the gift of your friend and actually witness and share your faith with your coworker? Maybe he comes to you tonight after the service with a gift of healing and he prompts you to go and pray for somebody who's suffering with illness, will you recognize when the king comes close to you and step out in faith and act upon the gift that he brings to you so that you could be an edifying member of the body of Christ and a blessing to the people that Jesus has placed you around? Sometimes the king comes close with a warning. 
Maybe you sit down with your small group leader or your pastor and you're just expecting another coffee or a lunch, but they sit down and say, I want to address X, Y, or Z in your life and you weren't expecting that. But can you recognize that the king has come close to you with a warning because you're on a path headed towards destruction and he wants to get you back on the path towards righteousness. Sometimes your friend comes to you with guidance. The Holy Spirit shows up in your life at a critical moment and he directs you. Are you open to God speaking words into your life that mess with your plan and redirect your path and give you a word about your future? Will you recognize the time of his coming to you that even though you wanted X, he's saying Y, will you go after Y and forsake X? Or will you ignore the time of God's coming to you, stop up your ears and pretend like he's not speaking? I find most often... When the king comes close, he comes close with a prompt to pray. And so much of the fruit that we want, the healings and the miracles and the breakthroughs and the blessings and, and all of the stuff that we believe God for is in the seed of the prayer that he prompts you to pray. Last year, a handful of students gathered together after their chapel service was over in their seminary, a small seminary called Asbury in Wilmore, Kentucky, has their regular chapel service, and after the service is over, a handful of students hang back because they just have a prompting that God wants them to pray. Just a sense that we should linger in this room just a little bit longer and just pray, not necessarily knowing what they're praying for, but just responding to the prompting of the Spirit to pray, and so they did. And within hours, what was just a small handful of students turned in over a thousand people gathered in that auditorium for weeks on, friends, I didn't say hours, I didn't say days, I said weeks on end, tens of thousands of people coming from all over the country to Will. Have you ever been to Wilmore, Kentucky? Of course you haven't been to Wilmore, Kentucky, but when the Holy Spirit prompts people to pray, and they step out on obedience to just follow that prompt to pray, then that little seed of prayer can birth great moves of God. Everything that you and I desire God to do is on the other side of obeying the king coming close to us with an invitation to engage. Don't miss the time of his coming. Many of us are too distracted to be in tune with the spirit. And so we miss him when he comes to us. Maybe we miss him as a mom or a dad when he presents that opportunity for us to have that moment with our son or our daughter. We're so committed to our agendas and perfectly laid out plans that we can't recognize his disruptions. A lot of people in the nation right now praying for revival is your prayer for revival actually matched with an expectation that the king wants to come. Or if a service goes 15 minutes late because people are hungry for prayer, are you checking your watch because you are hungry for lunch? Some of our hearts have become so calloused with offenses, we can't even feel him knocking anymore. Some of us have so many thorns from the cares of this world that the seed of his word can't be met with the proper response. There's many things, I'm sure, that keep us from recognizing the time of the Lord's coming to us. There's just three things I see in this story that Luke records of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem that keeps us from recognizing his coming. The three things that I see are legalism, 
lack of depth, and the love of prestige. Let's begin with legalism. This is, of course, represented through the group called the Pharisees. Perhaps we could call them the prideful. The legalist is somebody who reduces Christianity down to a set of rules to follow and does not pursue a real relationship with the Lord. Their view of Christianity is very one-dimensional. It's very flat. It's just, it's almost secular. It's what I can see and touch and feel and taste and what I can control and what I can measure. And that's how I'm gonna manifest. The kingdom is, is through my arbitrary set of rules that I call righteousness. And so the righteousness that they practice isn't really God's righteousness that permeates the heart. It's just self-righteousness that lives yeah. at the surface. You see, the legalist thinks that if they can pull the right levers and, and apply the right systems, then the kingdom results are sure to come. The trouble is that with the legalist, it's not usually God's kingdom that they're trying to usher in. It's usually their own kingdom that they're trying to usher in. Or maybe when we get things really mixed up, it's just the kingdom of a political party that we're trying to usher in. If we can just enact the right policies and get people to say and do the right things. And of course, we see this in the secular world and we can point our fingers as they try to build their own versions of utopia through their ridiculous notions and ideas. But friends, this legalism exists in the church as well. And so things like prayer and fasting and desperation for God to move are afterthoughts at best because the real star of the show is the behavior that's being manufactured on the ground level. Even the spiritual disciplines of Christianity have simply become that. They're just discipline. It's fuel. It's eating a meal at a table for one just to have something to say in your devotional time with somebody or just keeping up appearances. The legalist lives in a split-level home where everything that's truly needed is on the first floor. And there isn't really much need for going upstairs and I don't think we should bother inviting God to come down. Why would we bother with that when we can bring the kingdom through all of our scientific formulas and systems? For several years, I would wake up early every morning and I would go on a prayer walk and it was something that was very healthy for me and still is very healthy for me. And it started with really pure intent and, and really pure motive. In fact, it started because of a prophetic word uh, that I had gotten from somebody. And as time went on, uh, I would take out my phone each morning at some point during the prayer walk and I would take a photo either of the sunrise or some pretty scenery and I'd put a scripture on it and then I'd post that photo onto my Instagram story. And sure, there was a part of me, I guess, that could say that I wanted to encourage people themselves to be devoted to prayer and to wake up early and give the first part of their day to the Lord. But if I were to be really honest with you, there was a really big part of me that just wanted other people to see that I was devoted to prayer. I wanted them to see that I was devoted to waking up early in the morning. And so my prayer time went from true partnership with the Lord to just presentation of my own righteousness, presentation of my, my own piety. It wasn't true partnership anymore. It was just checking a box and making sure that I looked good while doing it. Just abiding by my own set of rules that this is what you have to do to be a good Christian and this is what's going to produce kingdom results. And all the while, God calls out with an invitation for fellowship and partnership. But the legalists can't often hear him over the sound of their own self-congratulation. The solution for the legalist is simple. This is point number one. Go higher. That's 
Let go of what you think is going to be praised by other people and seek the honor that comes from God. Turn your perspective from earth back to heaven. Recover the supernatural worldview of the Christian faith. Acknowledge the living God from whom you have life and who wants to show up in your daily life. You see, Christianity must not be a science to be perfected. Reading your Bible must not be a method to be mastered. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you think you will find eternal life. And all the while, the scriptures, they testify about me. The words on the page, they point to the word made flesh who is not just the God of 2,000 years ago. He's the God of today, and he still comes close to his people with particular persons. He He wants to draw near in your life with grace and love and show up for you and come close to you so that your Christianity isn't just about your good behavior, but it's actually about partnership with the king who lives. He lives. Perhaps you would say that your Christianity is lifeless. It's dry and maybe merely methodical instead of anointed and supernatural. Recognize today in this moment that Jesus doesn't just reign 2,000 years ago. Jesus reigns today and he's able to manifest his presence in your life anytime he wants He can draw near to you and your life can be a beautiful partnership and relationship with him. The second reason that we don't recognize when the king comes close to us is because we're in the group who suffers from a lack of depth. We're in the miracle-seeking crowd. Maybe we could call them the pretenders. Luke says that a majority of the crowd were journeying with Jesus at that moment because of the many miracles they had seen. Now, Jesus is clearly the miracle-working God. We believe that, no doubt. But we don't follow him simply for the chance of seeing something exciting happen. And when those things are the reason that we're following him, then we will miss him when he comes to us with greater things. If we're just looking for the exciting parts of faith, then we'll miss him when he comes to us with an opportunity to repent of a secret sin or to repent of a misplaced motive. If we're just looking for the flashy stuff, we'll miss him when he comes to us with an opportunity to serve in humility. If we're just looking for our own miracle and chasing our own miracle, then we'll miss him when he comes to us with an opportunity to work a miracle on somebody else's behalf. You see, the miracle-seeking crowd, they miss the time of Christ's coming because their Christianity is all surface and no depth. They live for the exciting and the entertaining parts of faith and they ignore that faith is actually meant to take them into service and sacrifice. And yes, even through suffering, which by the way is the only path to really experience miraculous resurrection life. There is no way into resurrection life apart from death, apart from suffering. And as long as you are hanging out on the surface and the shallows of your Christianity, you will miss out on the depths that Jesus wants to beckon you into so that as you plunge into those deep waters, you learn what it is to really experience the power of God. The disciples asked the Lord after his resurrection, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, is it time now for the exciting stuff to happen? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Yeah, in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Now, how's about a 10-day prayer meeting while you wait for that power? 
And so unsurprisingly, the miracle-seeking crowd, the, the people who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, shrinks down from about 500 down to 120 in the upper room because the miracle-seeking crowd want the fire of God, but they don't want the prayer meeting. So they follow the fire from place to place and from church to church and conference to conference, but they never get any oil of their own by which the fire can burn in them. They want the church to go into revival, but they're not coming to 7 a.m. prayer. They want the best facility, but they're not going to tithe. They want to be discipled, but they don't want to submit to the teaching of the disciple maker. They want salvation, but they don't want to give up their life. And so the call to those of us who are lacking in depth is, very simple. It's time to go deeper. Leave the surface level Christianity in the past and accept that Jesus does not come to you with an easy life. He comes to you with a meaningful one. And as long as you and I reject that, we will miss him every time he comes. You and I have to embrace the fact that no oil is made without the crushing of olives. There is no wine without the crushing of grapes. There is no fire of God without heat. And he does not send rain upon those who are not willing to dig wells. We gotta go deeper. The third and final group are those who miss the coming of Jesus because they love prestige. They're the position-seeking disciples. The 12 disciples, they loved Jesus. And they, at least 11 of them did. <laughs> and they faithfully followed him. They gave up everything for that. And Jesus told them, you're gonna be rewarded for doing so. But because of their misguided expectations, somewhere along the line, the reward became the point. And maybe that's some of us here tonight. You love Jesus and you've been faithfully following him. And Jesus has promised to bless and reward you, but somewhere along the line, the reward has become the point. And so your own agenda has become more important for keeping blessing and reward. This happens to us, I find, when serving Jesus by building something great. Maybe it's a business, maybe it's a ministry, whatever it is. When building something great becomes dangerously close to becoming a cover for actually serving ourselves. And thus our own plans, they get in the way of the kingdom truly advancing through us because God's reward has begun to stop with us instead of flow through us. For a long time, I would spend three to four hours every Saturday night, Pastor Joe, three to four hours every Saturday night, and I would memorize my 45-minute sermon word for word. I mean, I would lock it in this brain and you could not pry it out so that I could stand up on Sunday morning and preach across our services in our church in Los Angeles without a platform in front of me, without a single shred of notes, not a notebook, not an iPad, not nothing, just me and a microphone espousing my poetic sermon off the top of my dome to people who would clap and applaud because they thought it was impressive and I liked it. And I would tell myself, this is a really effective method of communication. I never have to look down at notes. I can just keep eye contact all the time with the people. And sure, there's something to be said about that. But again, if I were to be honest, I did it because I liked being able to say that I could. And I liked the feeling when people would come to me and say, hey, I noticed that you don't preach without notes. I go, yeah, I don't preach without any notes. Isn't that so great? <laughs> I would leave out the so great part, but I would think it. And so even in my sermon writing and my preaching, 
the experience of being impressive became the reward. And I would lose sight of this, the purity of ministering the gospel of Jesus. Some of you, you experienced the, word of, the reward of God's blessing in your own life. And that blessing has started to become about you instead of something that actually flows through you. So God blesses your business in 2023 and you think, well, I'll give the offering on the next deal. I'll give credit to the team member next time. I'll be selfless tomorrow. And I find many of us just aren't honest enough with ourselves about these realities in our lives that we wrestle with. And so we miss when Jesus comes to lead us into greater impact because we don't wanna be honest with the fact that we've made the blessing and the reward about us instead of living as vessels and conduits through which blessing can flow to impact others. We love the prestige of our position. If our culture teaches us to prize any position, it's the position of autonomy and independence. And so maybe you're here tonight and you care little for the admiration and the accolades of others. You're not necessarily living and dying by what other people think and say about you, but you love how independent you are. You prize your independence and so you actually become a tear in the fabric of the interdependent church and the value that you place on your autonomy makes you incapable of embracing the sacrifice and selflessness of servanthood. And it also makes us blind to our own faults. So when Jesus comes to the person who is in love with their position and who prizes their prestige of who they are and what they've attained and what they've achieved, they generally miss the time of his coming because it looks like an invitation to humility, which is not the invitation that they want. They miss the time of his coming because whenever he shows up to dinner, they're too busy looking for the best seat at the table while Jesus is washing feet. He shows up in the church service and he shows up at the small group, but they miss his presence because they're too busy maintaining their perfect image to respond to the call for prayer because I surely can't let anybody know that I need the thing that's being put out in terms of a prayer point. And so our solution, of course, for those of us who are lovers of our own prestige is to go lower. We must embrace that Jesus comes to those who are willing to meet him at the bottom. So again and again, we choose humility instead of pride. We choose to go unnoticed instead of to be recognized. We choose to be planted and buried instead of to be uplifted. And when we do that, Jesus comes to us with honor that far exceeds the honor of man. It's the honor of being used by him for the glory of God and for the good of others. And these are always the outcomes when the king comes close, when we recognize his presence, when we recognize his nearness, even though responding to it might be costly. Maybe it costs us our pride. Maybe it costs us our time. Maybe it costs us our finances. Maybe it costs us our image. It always costs us something, but that cost always amounts to the glory of God and the good of others. And I have found that laying down my own life resulting in God's glory and other people's good is the most rewarding life I could ever live. And Jesus comes to you as a friend to lead you into that experience. I mean, aren't you over living a life where it's just about waking up, eating your breakfast, getting your kids dressed, sending them to school, going to work, doing your job, coming at 
home, making dinner, going to sleep, and running that same play back over and over again? Aren't you tired of just living a Christian existence where you can't wait to get to heaven when you die, or you're just waiting around for Jesus to come back? Friends, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Don't get me wrong. But in the meantime, I actually want to live a Christian life where I recognize that he is the king who draws near, who comes close to me for particular purposes, and he actually wants to use and utilize me to make a difference in other people's lives. And I don't want to do that by my own strength or by my own might. I want to do it by his power, by his Holy Spirit. And he wants to draw near to lead us into that experience. I don't want to get to the end of my days and just be able to look back and connect all the dots. I don't want to just look and go, well, I made this choice then which led me to there and then I made this decision which then led me there and my life is just a series of decisions that I made that just mathematically makes sense and led me to the place where I am. I want to live a life that is marked by the miraculous presence of Jesus showing up in my life and I had faith, wisdom, and boldness enough to respond to the coming of the King with the gifts that he had to partner with him to live a supernatural existence and I believe that that's what the church is called to do. I believe that's the kind of life we're called to live and that's the invitation of the king to us if we were just step out in faith into that existence and when we don't we quench the spirit the, the judgment of Jesus upon Jerusalem was hundreds of years in the making and it was severe it's not the same judgment that you and I experience when we don't recognize the time of his coming the judgment that we experience is that we just miss out on the life that he had for us. We miss out on the more. We miss out on the partnership. We miss out on the life of faith of getting out of the boat and walking on water. And I'm kind of tired of walking on land. Is anybody with me? Let's praise God for this. Come on, clap your hands. Thank God for the fact that he's the king who comes to us. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to dive deeper into today's message, go to trinitydallas.com forward slash sermons to receive your copy of the notes. If today's message encouraged you, do someone else a favor and share it with them. Also be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. A special shout out to all those who partner with us through their giving. Your contributions have enabled us to touch the lives of people in our community as well as around the globe. Visit us at trinitydallas.com forward slash give to partner with what God is doing through Trinity Dallas. God bless.